0: Hello friends, welcome to a very special episode of the Causeway Living Podcast. This is going to be a reading from the book that I've been working on for over a year now. I started this back in November 2020 and there's been several iterations. I had a complete start over about five months in and the book has gone on the back burner for a long time. I've done little bits of writing in fits and starts, but other things have taken priority, such as the podcast. (laughs) I've got that up and running now. In more recent times, I really wanted to kickstart doing Wim Hof Method workshops again regularly, and I've been successful in that. They've been running again since the start of the year. The upcoming workshops are either sold out or very close to selling out. So quick plug here, if you get on over to the website, find the Wim Hof section and book on now if you want to get involved. The workshop on February 26th is sold out. There's a couple of spaces left on March 19th and then the April workshops are about half full already so get yourself over to the website if you want to get involved in a Wim Hof workshop. There's actually new dates as well, so right into June. So if any of the dates have not suited you and you've been waiting for new dates to pop up there are new dates available to book on the website now so that was another thing that took my focus another thing if you listen to last week's podcast was wanting to create a section on the website to give more information on the one-to-one work that I offer and that's gone through a little bit of a change recently as well Coming up to the end of last year, I allowed all the one-to-one coaching work that I was doing to come up to an end so that I could continue working with people in a slightly different way. I got really clear that the one-to-one work that I want to offer should be really specific and focused around emotional release work through breathwork and meditation. That's where I feel like most of the coaching clients that I was working with were getting most of the benefit and this is just how I'm going to offer the work going forward. So I had a big push since last week and doing last week's podcast where I talked quite a bit about this uh, to get the website all done and complete and everything's finished other than a video that I want to record that encapsulates all the information on the website and presents it in a way that someone can just listen to that and have a really good idea in 60 to 90 seconds such is the way of the 21st century (laughs) and if somebody finds that interesting they can read more on the website it's more in depth and more in detail and on the website there will be a couple of options so you can sign up for a consultation call where there is an opportunity to like ask direct questions and let me know specifically what do you want to get out of this emotional release work and I can tell you a little bit more you have space to ask questions about it as well and we can figure out if we're a good match for one another or you can just go straight ahead and book a one-to-one session straight away and even if you do that I'm probably going to jump on a short call beforehand uh, that would take the space of where the consultation call would normally come in just to make sure the person's fully prepared and know what's involved so we can jump right into the session so that's all uh, all been taken care of this week which is exciting like i said just gotta get that video recorded stick it up on the website and that gives me something to put out on social media to let people know that all the information's out there and if i am being very open and honest this is where i want to push the majority of my work with causeway living I'm definitely still going to continue running workshops. Uh, the ideal scenario would be once a month. I love the workshop experience and bringing awesome people together and especially when it's a big, like big bunch of strangers and by the end of the day they're all best mates and uh, like there's always such a good vibe by the end of it. That is a significant energy spend for me (laughs) and uh, you know especially if it's like a Wim Hof workshop you're guiding through people getting people through a very intense experience not just the ice bath the part that everyone thinks about as being a really intense experience but the group breath work and meditation there so uh, that's not something that uh, in an ideal world I would want to be doing too many of but definitely something I want to be part of my life going forward and potentially other different workshops in the future and retreats as well that's something that very much hope to do this summertime so stay posted for news on that but i feel like i've got a lot of my other priorities sorted the workshops running very close now to having all the information out there to really start putting more focus on the one-to-one work and if i've got those two things running nicely may allow my focus to go back to the book so with that in mind i'm going to read you the prologue in the first two chapters which were written some time ago and it's not something i've read over recently so uh, this isn't necessarily going to be a perfect audiobook style reading you're gonna have to take this as if i was just doing like a book reading somewhere this is You know, there's not going to be editing over if there is any little stumbles. So uh, yeah, without further ado, I'm just going to jump into the reading here and I'll catch you on the other side of that with a little outro. But we're just going to begin right here with the prologue of the book that I have entitled Being the Medicine. Dear reader, thank you for picking up this book. It has been over 34 years in the making and over a year in the writing process. Naively, when I set out to write this mostly autobiographical book, I thought it would be a simple process of recall, research and recounting some extraordinary tales. As it happened, the writing process would turn into an extraordinary tale of its own. While of course this book has been edited, I've aimed to leave the feeling and intention behind each chapter as it was when it was written. From these first few words until the last, come with me on a journey. November 1st, 2020. It is the second time in my life that I'm preparing to go two full months without solid food. Tomorrow, I begin a 60-day juice fast, due to conclude on January 1st, 2021. Today is approximately six and a half years since the last time I began a 60-day juice fast. At that time, I was clinically obese, weighing 270 pounds, I was also suffering from a severe case of rheumatoid arthritis and I just decided to stop taking the pharmaceutical drugs that had been ineffective for years by that stage. Since that low point in June 2014, my life has become almost unrecognisable. At the time of writing, I'm over 100 pounds lighter than when I started the previous fast. According to my bathroom scales, I now weigh 168 pounds. In another 60 days time, I'll weigh significantly less. I'm no longer suffering from any of the symptoms of my rheumatoid arthritis that i was diagnosed with in my early 20s i remained pharmaceutical drug free over half a decade later so why start another juice fast there are several reasons that i'll cover throughout this book but the main reason is that i'm following my intuition it feels like the right act to bookend the story of my healing and gain closure the last six and a half years have been an incredible and wild experience I'm choosing to end this time in my life by repeating the act it began with, 60 days of fasting. The time in between has seen literal round-the-world adventures, doing a full loop of the globe by plane on my travels. In this time, I've had experience with shamans in the Peruvian Amazon. I've hiked half-naked with world-famous iceman Wim Hof to the top of snowy Polish mountains. I'll share these tales and more in the following pages, including internal journeys more extreme than the geographical ones. My experiences sound incredible, but they haven't come without cost. I aim to share both the light and the darkness of my journey throughout this book. I faced constant challenges while striving to grow beyond the chronically ill, clinically obese, suicidally depressed person I once was. I'm still continuing to heal and integrate those parts of myself and let go of any judgment I feel towards them. Regardless of the challenges, I'm dedicated to a lifelong path of self-discovery, expanding the limits of my comfort zone, and realizing my capacity to hold space for life in action. Writing this book feels like a natural progression along the path I've chosen. I'm honoring the story of my past and creating space for new stories in the future. I'm choosing to write from a place of vulnerable sincerity. Opening up about difficult subjects in this book will challenge me, but I feel it's necessary to provide a full and complete context for the events that take place in the following pages. I feel that this is an opportunity for my own personal growth and self-acceptance a chance to share an example of a person strong in their vulnerability the latter is deeply meaningful to me i'm following in the footsteps of inspirational heroes who use their vulnerability to change the lives of many others people like joe cross in his documentary fat sick and nearly dead like aubrey marcus who discussed his plant medicine journeys on the joe rogan podcast these men were brave enough to open up about their struggles and share stories that have changed the course of my life in my search for healing, I chose the same. I chose to walk the same paths as Joe Aubrey and others. I now continue following their example in another way by publicly sharing my own journey. Even though I'm only now sharing my story as a book, I've been sharing the story orally and online over the past four years. I do so through the organization I created in September 2016, Causeway Living. Offering retreats, workshops, coaching and community events, Causeway Living teaches methods that help people improve their life circumstances and the lives of others around them. This endeavour has taken me around the globe. I have led seminars and retreats worldwide as an officially certified Wim Hof Method Instructor and Holistic Lifestyle Coach with the Czech Academy. I begin almost all Causeway Living events by sharing a short version of my personal story, how I became unwell, regained my health and found purpose in helping others. This book offers my story in a level of detail that has never been shared in before. Similar to the events that I run, this book is much more than an inspirational story. It's my best effort to transmit the feeling of who you really are at the core of your being. In sharing my highs and lows, I hope you come to understand that I am not defined by either of these, and this leads to a realization that you are much more than your story too. You're so much more than the story that has been created around you, more than your body, more than your memories, your thoughts, or even your personality. All of those things change drastically over the course of a lifetime, from infancy to old age. The only thing that remains constant from your first breath until your last is awareness. You are the witnessing presence, an observer of life unfolding and limitless potential. Have you ever met someone who seems to shine, making you wonder how, why, or what they do differently? By some means, they are aligning with who they really are. Whether you prefer the Buddhist teaching on enlightenment or Jesus's proclamation that the kingdom of God is within you, almost all religions point to something beautiful inside each of us. There are many paths towards this source energy, and pain can often be the trailhead to one. The chronic illness that I suffered from—the chronic illness that I suffered from—became the start of a journey to regain my health, but it led to so much more. What follows is the story of how, with help and support, I learned to stop looking outside for answers and realized the only way that I would ever truly heal was by being the medicine. Okay, back to present moment podcast, Scott, for a second. That holds up pretty well. I don't know if I would change much about that now, except for uh, maybe some of the time scales. You know, what was like for more than four years and now like more than five years when I was talking about Causeway Living and... Uh, yeah I'm still pretty happy with that introduction and feels like it does a pretty good job of what I want to do with the book so uh, I wasn't really intending on giving a little commentary after each part of the reading here but I feel like this creates something interesting and different than just the straightforward reading (laughs) so you'll get more of present moment podcast Scott after chapters one and two and a little bit of outro but I'm just going to jump straight on now into chapter one. Chapter one, illness. Trailhead. It took 26 years and nine months to finally hit rock bottom. The downhill momentum that I generated in the two years prior to my lowest point was terrifying, witnessing my life circumstances become exponentially worse. I was suffering from a severe case of rheumatoid arthritis that crippled me further each day. This caused me to become deeply depressed and often emotionally eat high-calorie processed food. I became clinically obese, making the symptoms of my arthritis even worse. It was a vicious cycle. By June 2014, I'd finally arrived at my dark night of the soul. My illness felt like a curse at that time, but it turned out to be one of my greatest blessings. In hindsight, I got to see that rock bottom can be the trailhead to a completely new path. Opportunity to stop moving in the direction that I was headed. Unfortunately, not everyone moves on from rock bottom, hitting it so hard or so immediately that they decide life is no longer worth living. I truly empathise with that. I had prayed for an end to my life many times, long before the despair of 2014. Depression was a familiar feeling that went back to my youth as an often sad and mopey child. Each time I share the story of my rock bottom point at speaking events, retreats or even podcasts, the hardest part part to admit is having had suicidal thoughts. Only in learning compassion for myself at that stage in my life has this admission become easier. Even though I feel like I would have never acted on those thoughts, who's to say that one more burden may not have been the straw that broke the camel's back? Thankfully that wasn't the case and I'm now on a continuing journey to accept the part of myself that just wanted to let go. That part just wanted to end my suffering. Thankfully, amidst the myriad voices, urges and drives that compel a human to act in whatever way they do, the voice that pushed me to end my life wasn't the winner. It wasn't able to persuade the voice that opposed with, what about your family? There was also an opposing voice that feared the unknown of a potential afterlife. If what I had been told in church when I was a child were true, then taking my own life would lead to an eternity of torment. It seemed like a safer bet to choose the alternative perhaps another 50 or 60 years suffering with arthritis, depression, and obesity. Retrospectively, I can now see how the fear of God may have actually saved my life. It's amazing how many of our actions are dictated by influences in our formative years, not only from the church, but from all of our early experiences. Dr. Gabor Mate's book, When the Body Says No, suggests that there is a particular personality type associated with chronic illness, and much of the personality is formed in early childhood. Whether it is what we are told or beliefs that we create by ourselves to make sense of the world, it can set us on a path to happiness and health or depression and illness. Attunement As a child, my school report cards had described me as a quiet, well-mannered and thoughtful boy. Those sound like admirable character traits, but every coin has two sides. Looking at the other side of this coin, a fearful people-pleaser is revealed. I was a child who put others first, although unbeknownst to me, it wasn't from a wholly altruistic place. Without realising it, I had adopted this behaviour as a survival strategy for the most part. The nice guy routine is often a subconscious programme run for acceptance since childhood, leaving the person thinking, it's just the way I am. As a wise old saying states, nice guys finish last. There is a lot of truth to that the nice guy who represses his needs in order to find acceptance from others will often finish last in all kinds of metaphorical races. Why? In part due to the mental and physical health problems that can arise as a result of his people-pleasing behaviour. If you hadn't guessed it already, this is the personality type that Dr Gabor Mate associates with people who develop chronic illnesses, especially autoimmune disorders. I was a textbook example, a nice guy suffering from rheumatoid arthritis. While reading Dr. Gabor Mate's work, it felt like I was reading about myself and the anecdotes that he shared. If this chapter resonates with your own life experience, I would strongly recommend that you read his work too. Dr. Ashley Inquiry, a friend of mine who has worked with Dr. Mate personally, explained to me the two simple needs that we have built into us from infancy, authenticity and attachment. When these needs come into conflict, attachment wins every time. Uncovering this truth created the foundation to build a better understanding of the illnesses that I'd suffered from. Attachment is the emotional bond between two mammals for the purposes of nurturing or being nurtured. It is an essential part of human survival. Authenticity is a person's unsuppressed expression. When a child expresses itself and this is met with acceptance by the parent, there's no conflict between authenticity and attachment. However, when the child expresses itself and this meets the boundary of the parent, the expression will be rejected. As attachment is more essential to the child's survival than self-expression, the child will learn to suppress their rejected expressions. Our ancestors who frequently listened to their caregivers at the cost of self-expression were the ones who survived into maturity and passed on their DNA. It appears to be bred into us through natural selection. Suppression is a normal process of the unconscious mind. Although this is a healthy function, it holds the potential to become pathological. When a child learns that parts of their personality are unacceptable to their caregivers, they learn to push these parts deep down inside, but the parts don't disappear. These exiled parts can be the root cause of pain and illness. One of the most difficult things to accept in understanding that chronic pain or illness has roots in childhood is that it may have developed through the child's relationship to its caregivers. Every reader of this book is the offspring of a parent, and many readers may be parents themselves. The idea that your parents may have been at the root of your pain or that you may have been at the root of your child's pain can be deeply triggering the work of clinical psychologist dr janice webb explains this phenomenon in an extremely compassionate way that really resonates with me dr webb's book running on empty initially made me feel uncomfortable i had reservations about the book's subtitle overcome your childhood emotional neglect when i look back on my childhood i didn't consciously remember feeling neglected I always had enough food to eat and clean clothes that fit me. I was taken by my parents on sunny summer holidays to Spanish coastal resorts. I was never left wanting for whatever toy or computer game was popular that year at Christmas. I knew I was loved. Those are privileges that many others in the world didn't have. I'm glad that I didn't judge Running on Empty by its cover and look past the subtitle, The further I got into the book, the more I understood that childhood emotional neglect isn't a case of abuse or something that had been done to the child. Childhood emotional neglect is merely the absence of something. It involves a lack of emotional attunement that leaves the child with unfulfilled needs. Childhood emotional neglect comes in many different forms, as described in Dr Webb's work. Despite the different routes, the results are often the same. Tiredness, loneliness and disconnection leading to pathological behaviour or pain. Emotional attunement is accepting a person's present moment feelings as they are. It requires an understanding that feelings come and go and that our feelings often have something important to tell us. Accepting the challenging emotions of a loved one such as fear, anger or sadness can be very difficult. It is a normal reaction to try and fix a person's discomfort when you care about them especially if this is the pattern you learned from your own caregivers. When trying to fix something, we are rejecting how it is in the present moment, implying that it is broken. It is non-acceptance. When a parent is unable to hold their child's uncomfortable emotions as they are, the rejection of these emotions teaches the child to suppress them. As explained, the child will hide unacceptable feelings to protect the attachment relationship for survival. Any repressed feelings that have been exiled from conscious awareness can lurk in the unconscious as repeating patterns. For example, a person whose carefree joy wasn't accepted may find this play out later in life as controlling behaviour. A person whose anger wasn't accepted may see it turned inside as self-hatred or pain. The work of Dr Richard Schwartz and his model of internal family systems helped me to understand the exiled parts of myself and other parts of my psyche that developed as a result. Key to this model is the understanding that there are no bad parts. I can align with my authentic self as the witness of life unfolding and experience my anger or sadness fully. I can then accept what these feelings or parts of my psyche are trying to achieve. My aim is then to find a way to meet the needs of these parts before they have to act out unconsciously or show up as pain. In an ideal world, each parent would meet the feelings of their child in attunement understand the cause and find an acceptable way to meet the child's underlying need. In the reality of day-to-day life, this is often easier said than done. Each parent has their own needs and complex internal system of parts built on a foundation of their own upbringing, passing on patterns from their parents and their grandparents before that. When we do the work to heal exiled parts of our psyche, it is an opportunity to break a chain of patterns that would otherwise pass from generation to generation. This inner... This inner healing work is a deeply spiritual practice. We not only heal ourselves, but lift burdens from future generations and raise humanity's habitual level of consciousness. Rather than seeing most people stuck in suppressed anger, shame or fear, I believe this work holds potential for future generations to habitually reside in love, abundance, joy and creativity. This is the trend that my life has continued to take since beginning my own inner work and it's precisely what I've aimed to share with others through retreats, one-to-one work and community events. My life is anecdotal evidence. Childhood. I'm continually walking the path of healing, raising my energy and helping others to do the same. Sometimes the path takes unexpected dips and bends but I can look back and see that I've come a long way from a past of habitual sadness, fear and much lower energy. As far back as I can remember I often felt scared and unhappy. This was despite having two parents that loved me very much and being physically safe and well. On the surface it seemed like I had everything I needed but the roots of my unhappiness went much deeper than anyone involved could see. I have two considerably older brothers. My mother explained to me that before I was born when my siblings were about to enter their teens she had decided to leave my father. Without the preoccupation of young, dependent children, my mum realised that she was unhappy in her marriage. The decision to break the family unit was so traumatic for all involved, my parents decided to stay together and work on it. My mum felt that having another child would make her happy again, and that's when I was born. History repeated itself 11 years later, and my parents finally divorced. Dr Sherry Jacobson, the founder of London's prestigious Harley Therapy, explains the consequences of a codependent parent-child relationship. This means your parent relied on you for their sense of happiness, perhaps making you the caregiver instead of them. You might have taken on board that you could not have negative emotions or you would destroy the happiness of those you love and their sadness would be all your fault. Such a child grows up to be an adult who only acknowledges their acceptable side and denies the rest out of a deep rooted fear of rejection. As Dr. Jacobson explains, When a parent's happiness depends on their child's happiness it leads to the child rejecting the feelings that makes the parent unhappy this creates suppressed exiled parts of the self that may surface as unconscious patterns stuck feelings or pain most parents would never knowingly do this to their child and are completely unaware of what is happening while trying to do their best acts of genuine care and codependency can overlap so everything appears to be fine until the child doesn't feel good and often nobody involved can understand why Both of my brothers left home at an early age. David, the eldest, left Ireland for a university in Scotland at the age of 18. Stephen left home at the age of 16 to become an assistant golf professional in another part of Ireland. I don't remember them coming home very often, other than occasionally at Christmas. From the age of five, I was raised in the manner of an only child. Both of my parents worked hard and grew their own businesses. And while I have great memories of time spent with my parents as a young child, I also remember spending a lot of time alone. The best time of my young life began when we moved house. I was nine years old and quickly made friends with the older children who lived on the new street. In our previous family home I remember watching a lot of television and playing computer games on my own during the week. Time with friends outside of school hours was usually limited to weekend sleepovers. In our new home however I could play football with the kids that lived on the same street during weekdays. I was much happier and developed a greater self-esteem through acceptance from the older children. School went better at this time of my life too. Thanks to playing football with the older kids in my street at home, I was one of the best footballers of my school when set against children who were my own age. This made me reasonably popular amongst my peers. That phase of my life lasted right up until the end of primary school, aged 11 and about to progress into grammar school. Within a single weekend, my life changed dramatically from that relative high. In just a few short days, I had a new school, a new home, a whole new life and every part of it felt heartbreaking. At the end of August 1999, my dad and I travelled from our family home in Northern Ireland to watch Leeds United play at Ellen Road. Being football and Leeds mad, this was a real high for me, preceding the low of my return to Ireland. The return was upsetting because my parents had just divorced and I wasn't going home, I was going to my mum's new house. I was leaving the friends who I kicked the football about within the street and leaving my dad. I was also miserable at the prospect of starting a new school that I didn't want to go to, only a week after leaving home. I wasn't allowed to go to the school of my choice, a mixed gender school in the next town over. I was sent to the school that my parents wanted me to go to instead, an all-boys school in my hometown. The The childhood belief that my wants and needs were less important than the needs of others was being reflected back at me further reinforcing this belief at a key stage of development in my life. With my 12th birthday falling on the first weekend after starting grammar school, I was in the early stages of puberty. I was transitioning from a child to adult and learning about how to be as a man. So many things changed in my external world at this stage of my life, while my internal world was changing hormonally at the same time. I'm certain that my parents had no idea how challenging this was for me, nor the effect it would have. I know that my parents have always loved me with all of their hearts and have always done their best for me while contending with their own personal challenges. Without my parents' love and support, the highs and the lows, I wouldn't be writing these words in the present. I'm extremely grateful for the entire path that has led to this moment. Shadows. The reason that I'm sharing uncomfortable truths and difficult moments from the past in this book is to offer a clearer understanding of the person I am today and the journey I've taken. I'm only capable of this thanks to the inner work I've practiced in recent years. By looking into the deepest, darkest caves within my psyche, I've discovered the dragons that lurk there. By shining the light of awareness into the shadows, it's possible to confront those metaphorical dragons and take their metaphorical gold, wisdom. It is the hero's journey to overcome the dragon and share its wealth. Our ancestors understood this well. Ancient humans were every bit as intelligent as their modern descendants, but required different means of sharing wisdom other than the methods that we use today. Before a time of empirical science, knowledge was passed on in the form of story. Information went from person to person before the printing press, books and mass literacy. To make information more memorable, it was shared in the form of epics. The oldest known creation myth is the Enuma Elish, an ancient Babylonian tale of a king that slew a dragon, creating the sky and the earth with its body. This story would show up in many different guises throughout history, all sharing the same deeper wisdom, that it is an act of heroism to confront what scares you most. The hero faces the possibility of being eaten, literally consumed by their fear. Is worth the risk, however, for the treasure that can be won if the encounter goes favourably. St. George and the Dragon, Bilbo and Smaug, Harry Potter and the Basilisk, all retellings of the same ancient story. Even this book is a tale of a man who confronted his fears and shared the treasured information he gained from his victories. Understanding why you act the way you do may be the most healing, empowering, but challenging endeavour that you ever undertake swiss psychoanalyst carl jung explained until you make the unconscious conscious it will direct your life and you will call it fate do you ever feel like you make the same mistakes over and over again and wonder why whether it's ending up in the same unhappy relationships or always carrying those extra 10 pounds or anything else whatever loop you find yourself in it is not fate causing the repetitive pattern it is your subconscious mind even though it's not some external force like fate that causes a person to suffer from repeated undesirable circumstances, individuals themselves cannot be blamed for it. As already explained, certain, parts, certain patterns are learnt by the subconscious mind in early childhood. It is necessary for survival. The same patterns of behaviour can have disastrous consequences when they continue to play out into adulthood. Without awareness of this, subconscious patterns have the ability to drive people into a life-or-death situation of suicidal ideation. I know this from my own personal experience. By my early teens, I was already tired of life, yet I still had a lot of suffering to endure before hitting my lowest point. I used to feel a lot of shame about my overweight, miserable teenage self. Through inner work, I've since found a lot of compassion for him. He was just doing his best with the limited level of awareness he had. I believe that expanded awareness creates the opportunity to greatly reduce a person's suffering by sharing a full expression of my being through my work, expanding awareness and reducing suffering and fulfilling my purpose of being the medicine. There's a much more depth to the title of this book than may be evident from its use in the previous paragraph. A deeper truth is that you are the medicine too. You have everything you need inside of yourself already, but human beings are made for connection And we can guide one another to access higher levels of consciousness or healing. I believe that on the deepest level we are all connected in oneness so when you help another person on a deeper level you help yourself. I'm being the medicine for you, for me, our past selves, ancestors and future generations and you can do it too. And you're gonna have to have a little pause here while the phone goes. (laughs) Okay we're back. I'm also being the medicine for my beautiful girlfriend who <laughs> just called on the podcast there. So uh, I refrain from answering on the podcast. Maybe next time I'll do that, but <laughs> we continue. <laughs> Adolescence. In my teenage years, following the upheaval of my parents' divorce, I suffered from the pattern set in my earlier childhood. I was severely depressed and exhibited all the symptoms of childhood emotional neglect self-discipline, overeating, anxiety and low self-esteem to name a few. I mostly suffered through this time quietly but on a number of occasions the intensity of my suffering became impossible to bear. This drove me into action. My body and my mind were learning that intense suffering could drive me to act in self-expression no matter how much I wanted to avoid it. By age 15 I felt so unhappy living at my mum's house that in an act of desperation I walked out and asked my dad if I could live with him An enormously brave act for a chronically shy child that lacked confidence. I also became so unhappy in the school I went to that just after turning 17 I made the decision to go against my dad's wishes and study at the local technical college instead. I may not have got the education I was looking for there but I did walk to college and back home again each day losing the extra weight I carried in my earlier teen years. An internal shift occurred when I chose to override my people pleasing pattern and leave the school that I hated. This created an outer world shift in significant weight loss. It was also the catalyst for me to continue growing into my self-expression. I grew my hair longer and found friends who were into the same kind of music. I even found my first girlfriend at the age of 18. Though these were steps in the direction of my authenticity at the time, the old patterns didn't disappear. I wasn't at all enthusiastic about the subjects I was studying at college, and I still felt depressed. The antidepressant drugs I was prescribed at that time left me feeling foggy and disconnected. Despite being offered a conditional place at University College London if I passed my final exams, I felt unwilling and unable to even try. I lost a lot of confidence when my opportunity to run away to the big city had disappeared, deciding to return to the technical college to study art instead. In hindsight, this was another attempted shift towards my authenticity and creativity, but the class wasn't what I expected. When I finally dropped out it was my brother who stepped in to help. When my mum had to retire early due to illness my brother Stephen, 11 years my senior, took control of her mother's business and moved it into a warehouse in the next town over. Steve knew I was struggling at that time and offered me a job helping his warehouse manager picking and packing orders to ship out. While it certainly wasn't my dream job it felt like a really positive opportunity. It gave me a simple task that I could do competently and make some money I had the chance to rebuild some self-esteem after a very low point at the end of my time in college. Before long, I had the opportunity to be more creative within my brother's business. I was asked to help take photos of the products in the warehouse so that they could be put onto the company website. I was able to create some nice images with an illegally downloaded copy of Photoshop that I had on my computer at home and produce some simple flyers for the company too. Opportunity presented itself once again as the business grew. My brother needed someone to create vectored artwork using design programs similar to photoshop so i stepped up and taught myself how over time i developed the full skill set of a graphic designer learning out of necessity when the business needed me to be capable of doing something i would learn how to do it using free youtube tutorials and i always found a way the ingenuity and design skills that i learned at this time became invaluable later in life but at that time i still felt very unfulfilled by what i was doing My people-pleasing pattern led me to begin working the same long hours as my brother and his business partner. I was frequently at the office for up to 12 hours a day and working at the weekends as well. The long work hours meant seeing my girlfriend at the time less and less. Since we had become a couple, her health had had deteriorated rapidly. A bizarre coincidence saw her diagnosed with the same rare chronic illness that caused my mum to retire early from her work. When I did get to see my girlfriend, the impact of witnessing her deteriorating health had left me feeling drained. Once again, the suffering built and built until it forced me into action for my own self-interest. I finally ended the relationship, but the guilt and shame I felt from leaving her drove me into a darker part of my life. My job was a socially acceptable way to hide from the world and avoid any judgment for doing so. I became extraordinarily reclusive. I'd found a safe but miserable place to let my life pass by, rather than go out and engage with it. I was existing in fear, hiding from the inevitable challenges and pain that come as a result of living in a more full expression of authenticity. After four years of mostly sitting alone in a small, windowless, halogen-lit office for about 12 hours a day behind screens, pain came to find me. That pain would eventually be diagnosed as rheumatoid arthritis. It took a long time to feel compassion for who I was in my early twenties, the guy who hid away from the world, and ended up chronically ill. Similar to my teenage years, I held on to a lot of shame about that time in my life. Learning about the psychological <clears throat> Learning about the psychological processes explained in this chapter has helped me to work through my shame. With a greater awareness, I recontextualized the story that had been created around my young adulthood and worked through the feelings associated with that. A similar process to alleviating the fear of flying by learning how an airplane works. Even if the rheumatoid arthritis that I was diagnosed with wasn't necessarily my fault, it was my responsibility to do something about it. Just like the previous occasions in my life that required me to override old patterns, my suffering had to build to an unbearable level before I acted. This time, my body chose to communicate using pain and inflammation to push me towards authenticity. I now I look back at the pain that took me to the brink of life or death as extremely tough love. It was this pain that would set wheels in motion for the extraordinary circumstances that were about to unfold. And that was the end of chapter one. That was very interesting for me. I feel like certain paragraphs really stand out. And whenever it comes to the time of releasing this, there probably are bits and pieces of this that I would like to change around. But... Do let me know what you think of this. I'm definitely gonna to listen to this episode back and maybe it'll be a different experience listening to it back than just reading it out there, you know, for this recording, rather than just reading it to to experience it firsthand. So jump on over to causewayliving.com slash podcast where there's a contact form and send me some feedback i'd really love to know your opinions and whether like there is value in these early chapters of the book and setting a really like clear background and foundation to some of the bigger things that are going to come ahead maybe the more interesting parts of the story like peru and the work with the plant medicines and the shamans there or my time spent with wim Hof. i feel like this stuff is a really important foundation but equally i don't want it to be so heavy or get into like so many details that it Uh, it's hard to wade through in order to get to to the bigger stuff that moves uh, further into the book and and the big conclusion so please do let me know go to causewayliving.com slash podcast use the contact form in there and any feedback would be gratefully received and maybe hold your horses because there's chapter two just about to follow (laughs) and uh, maybe listening to that as well I'll give you uh, some more further context before you send any feedback. So, here we go, Chapter Two. Okay, full disclosure: I went and had dinner, and I'm now <laughs> feeling energized to take this podcast through to completion. And here we really go, Chapter Two: Awareness. Arthritis. I began suffering with joint pains in 2010. However, it wasn't until the spring of 2011 that I was finally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. The condition developed gradually, beginning as pain and inflammation in the small joints of my feet, making it impossible to jog or run. The inability to exercise was deeply distressing, having been overweight in my early teenage years and fearful of ending up in that condition again. Little did I know know at the time, those fears and worse would soon be fully realised. I would end up clinically obese and struggle to walk let alone run or keep active. I had very few interests or hobbies in the few years that preceded my chronic illness. Exercise was one of the few activities that I enjoyed outside of my long work hours. I wasn't especially fit but I enjoyed weekly workouts with an amazing personal trainer Sue Galvin. When the pain I started to experience stopped me from staying active in between sessions with Sue she encouraged me to see a doctor I was initially diagnosed with having plantar fasciitis, although it became apparent that something much more severe was going on when the pain spread to other joints in my body. The horror I experienced during the development of my joint pain and inflammation is something I'll never forget. It was terrifying to wake up each morning and discover another one of my joints had become swollen. Every day I felt shocked at how painful it was becoming to take my first few steps out of bed. By that stage, I had given up physical training altogether and after several more visits to the doctor, I was on my way to see a rheumatologist. Receiving an official diagnosis was heartbreaking in a way that I had never previously experienced. I was mourning my past healthy self. Extended family and the few friends who I stayed in touch with were surprised at the news of my condition, in part due to misunderstanding the diagnosis. Many people hear the word arthritis and associate it with osteoarthritis. A condition that usually affects older people onset of osteoarthritis often takes place around the age of 45 whereas the condition i was diagnosed with can affect people of any age rheumatoid arthritis falls into the category of autoimmune disease alongside multiple sclerosis psoriasis and other illnesses it is rooted in an overactive immune system the cause of autoimmune disease is not known to western medicine The conventional treatment is not to cure the illness, but simply to address the symptoms. At first, I was treated with a series of steroid injections into the most inflamed joints to initially reduce inflammation as a short-term stopgap measure. What followed was the prescription of long-term immunosuppressant drugs. These dampen the immune response and can help maintain a lower level of inflammation, but at a cost. Users are left at the risk of infection and further complications upon becoming immunosuppressed. In my desperation to reduce joint pain, I accepted the potentially serious side effects and complications of the drugs that I had been prescribed. These were costs that I felt willing to incur, to be able to walk again without pain in the soles of my feet or brush my teeth without pain in the joints of my hand. Although I was willing to accept the consequences of taking strong pharmaceuticals, it didn't make those consequences any less frightening. One of the prescribed drugs, methotrexate, required me to take a blood test every fortnight to ensure it wasn't doing more harm than good. Being diagnosed with an incurable disease made me contemplate my mortality in a way that I never had before. I initially experienced childlike fear in the thought that my illness would last forever. Reality hit me when I realized the pain could only last for as long as I was alive. If I expired at the average age of death for men in Northern Ireland, I would have less than 60 years left to suffer. The idea that I may be able to manage my condition for this finite period of time gave me something to hold on to and helped me find peace with the idea that I may never be cured. Initially, it seemed like my hopes were well-founded. By early 2012, my consultant had prescribed a cocktail of pharmaceuticals that reduced the level of inflammation in my body. I was so grateful for being able to move again without pain that I decided to use my newly acquired physical well-being for greater good. I began cycling with the ambition of taking part in the annual Belfast to Dublin Mara Cycle in June of that year to raise money for Arthritis Research UK. I became an inspiration to myself by fulfilling this intention, realising that I was capable of more than I once believed possible. When I look back on this period in my life, I feel like being of service to others and spending time active outdoors had significantly raised my energy. I was becoming more closely aligned to who I really am, And felt emboldened to take a huge step professionally leaving my brother's business to start my own my inclination to be a people pleaser made this a huge challenge and i ended up in a limbo like space between continuing my old job and starting my own new business it was extraordinarily stressful and before long i felt familiar joint pains creeping back into my body by the end of 2012 the pharmaceutical drugs i was taking had become ineffective I was unable to continue cycling, and I ended the weekly fitness program I had restarted with my personal trainer, Sue. My inability to assertively take action, create space from my old job, and make my graphic design business work, was the beginning of a downward spiral that would lead to my rock bottom. I had confronted the dragon and lost. As pharmaceutical treatment had only been effective for a few months, I lost faith in drugs as a long-term solution and descended into years of hopelessness nadir despite believing that pharmaceutical drugs could only offer temporary relief from my pain it took a long time for me to consider trying any alternatives the doctor's word felt final scientism is the orthodoxy of our time and doctors are part of scientism's priest class just as our ancestors accepted the word of the reverend as the infallible word of god most people today accept the word of the doctor as the infallible word of science I was no exception and continued taking the various drugs that my rheumatologist prescribed despite knowing these wouldn't heal my body. When a person blindly accepts the word of others, they willfully relinquish their own responsibility. Spiritual teacher Thomas Hubel describes responsibility as the ability to respond. By blindly accepting what I was being told about my health, I was surrendering the ability to respond to my illness. I would later learn that I was very capable of responding to the ill state of my health, once I voluntarily took responsibility for it. This experience would teach me that even though listening to others is an essential part of life using discernment and listening to how you feel is equally so. The psychological suffering I endured when my medication stopped working was at least equal to, if not worse than, the physical pain that I experienced. In a state of poor mental health, I lost faith in my ability to start my own business. However, I was already in the slow process of leaving my previous job. It felt like bridges had been burnt and it was too late to turn back. I had no option but to keep wading into a murky and chaotic unknown. In 2013, it seemed like a lifeline had been thrown in my direction. I had the opportunity to partner up in business with a college friend and an acquaintance. I was grateful to have the offer of professional support from James, a friend from my late teenage years, and David, A friend of James who had gone to the same grammar school I had attended. Between us we had most of the skills required to help small businesses get online and could outsource any work that we weren't capable of ourselves. All three of us were optimistic about this opportunity and decided to establish a small digital agency. Unfortunately I would soon discover that our optimism was unwarranted having lacked the sales expertise to acquire much work. After finally landing a big job for a startup company in England, Joy quickly turned to despair when one issue led to another. We chose to hire a friend of James to do the web development for this job, only to find out months into the project that he had lied about what he was capable of, leaving us without a developer. I communicated this to the client and they responded by threatening legal action. I felt I had no option but to hire another developer and complete the job at a large financial loss. Despite trying to claw money in from all involved, I bore the brunt of the costs and fell into personal debt. The people-pleasing nature I had developed in childhood once again become the source of immense suffering in my adult life. I had naively taken the word of a friend without doing my own research and hired an incompetent person to fulfill a client's needs. The only avenue I could see out of that mess was by pleasing the angry client at any cost. I lacked the assertiveness to find a more reasonable way out of the situation, taking personal and financial responsibility for something that was a shared problem. I had to borrow money from family and felt totally humiliated. My decision to hire a new developer and resolve the client's issues was the beginning of an even more challenging period of my life. I spent long hours working to complete this job as quickly as possible and avoid the legal action that we've been threatened with. I was often eating high calorie food for energy to continue working into the night as well as overeating to numb the psychological pain that I was experiencing. As a result, I became more and more overweight, making the symptoms of my rheumatoid arthritis even worse. This cycle continued until I hit a personal low point in 2014. The excruciating moments that led up to the worst point in my life were essential for me to be where I am now. And as such, I wouldn't change a thing from my past. From within this agonizing period of time, I received the inspiration and information that was required to transform my pain into purpose. The digital agency might have seemed like an abject failure, but the connection I made with David would massively impact the rest of my life. David introduced me to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, and in doing so, he brought the plant medicines of Peru into my awareness. Synchronicity. On May the 11th, 2014, I listened to entrepreneur Aubrey Marcus on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. He shared the story of his transformational healing journey to South America. It was an incredible, it was incredible, an adventure in the Peruvian Amazon with a shaman who he described as a real-life Gandalf. Aubrey was talking about Don Howard Lawler, the founder of Spirit Quest Sanctuary in Iquitos, Peru. I had an intuitive feeling that this man and his medicines were capable of getting to the root of my illness and changing my life, however the idea of going to Peru seemed impossible. Over the course of eight months following Aubrey's podcast, I would go on to realise that anything could be possible. Despite my poor financial situation and the state of my physical health, I'd be sitting with Don Howard in the jungle by January 2015. Not only that, but I would also no longer be suffering any symptoms of the rheumatoid arthritis that I was diagnosed with and I would be back to a healthy body weight. Whenever I find myself in challenging circumstances, I recall this experience as a powerful reminder of just how much a life can change for the better in only a matter of months. The healing I experienced throughout 2014 felt like nothing short of a miracle, but this wasn't the first time in my life that I had witnessed something far beyond the level of my understanding. Some of my earliest memories are of being terrified by a presence in the dark. And when I was left alone in my bedroom at night, my child self described this presence as a ghost or an alien a version of myself from several years ago would have described this as the manifestation of fear in the shadow of my unconscious and now i stand in humility and admit that it could have been either neither or both my fear of a presence in the dark remained until almost my teen years a stage by which most children would have been expected to grow out of something like that this wasn't the only occurrence of what felt like a supernatural phenomena around this stage of my life in my early teens, I was devastated when my beloved dog, Monty, had been knocked on by a car. I was told it was unlikely he would survive. Heartbroken, I sobbed and prayed for just one more week with the dog and a chance to return the love that he showed me. I was given exactly what I had prayed for. Monty's recovery in the week following the car accident was incredible. I had the chance to play with him in the garden and give him lots of attention. He was unexpectedly en route to a full recovery when exactly one week later, He was knocked on by another car and this time passed away. It's entirely plausible that the timing was just mere coincidence, but it felt like a deeply meaningful one is my earliest memory of encountering synchronicity, a term coined by Carl Jung to describe circumstances that appear meaningfully related yet lack a causal connection. Psychologist Jordan Peterson describes synchronicity as a moment when the narrative and the objective world touch, and the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. He further describes Jesus as an actual person who actually lived, plus a myth, and in some sense Christ is the union of those two things. I understand this to mean that witnessing the alignment of the stories you believe with objectively true events could be thought of as akin to divine intervention. It offers a numinous sense of connection to what could be described as higher levels of energy. Experience of synchronicity seems to be tied to the present moment. Only when we let go of projections into the future and rumination on the past, can we witness the miraculous nature of what is happening right now. By aligning with our stillness and witnessing what arises without attachment, we also create space for intuition, creativity, and raise our level of consciousness. By choosing to open yourself up to higher levels of energy, you also voluntarily take on greater responsibility. The greater awareness you receive, increases your ability to respond to life. My beliefs about synchronicity are not widely shared, and I advise you to come to your own conclusions on the subject. Psychiatrist Klaus Conrad created the term apophenia in his publication on the beginning stages of schizophrenia. He He used it to describe an unmotivated seeing of connections accompanied by a specific feeling of abnormal meaningfulness. There may be a fine line between mysticism and madness, but my beliefs are reinforced by the benefits that they bring. My life circumstances continuously improve as a result of paying attention to meaningful coincidences. Prescience. Not long before my body declined into ill health, my brother Stephen sent me to visit a personal development coach, Rob Reed. Stephen was aware that my mental health was in a bad state and felt this coach could help improve my circumstances. There aren't many coaches of this kind in Northern Ireland and even less so at that time. The idea that my path would lead into the same profession less than a decade later would have been laughable to me then but that's precisely what happened. This wasn't the only glimpse of the future that I would receive by working with Rob. The coaching sessions I did with Rob gave me greater awareness of my fears and the story I'd been caught up in. I uncovered the shame that I held around having both a healthy body and a sharp mind but doing very little of value with either. I also discovered that seeing my mother and my ex-girlfriend succumb to chronic illness had left me with a fear that I would fall into the same fate. I believed that if I continued to squander the gifts of health, youth and opportunity, these would be taken away. I didn't realise at the time, but this was an extraordinary moment of foresight. The coaching work I did with Rob didn't just unveil my fears, but it had also been granted a vision of what would happen if I continued living the same set of patterns, In this greater awareness, it became my responsibility to take action and change my ways, but I did nothing about it. By refusing to confront the dragon in its lair, it grew into a monster capable of coming to hunt me down. Literary professor Joseph Campbell mapped out commonalities between humanity's ancient archetypal stories and plotted refusal of the call to be a key point of what he called the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell's work helped me better understand the abstract narrative truths that resonated with people throughout all of recorded human history. I believe that bringing the narrative truth and the objective truth into alignment within your present moment awareness is a deeply spiritual act. The more I consciously intend to do this and act upon it, the more it comes into being through synchronicity as well. It feels like being in partnership with life, coming together to continually raise consciousness to higher levels. The hero's journey now brings a deep sense of meaning to my life. The only reason I initially began listening to what life was trying to tell me was the experience of refusing to do so. By ignoring life's whispers, I had to endure its scream, pain and suffering. Some people are adequately motivated by the carrot, but I needed the stick. When I first got my health back through pharmaceutical drugs, my fear of becoming ill again trumped any fear of the things that I was too scared to do in the past. I entered a sporting event, raised money for charity, started my own business, and even though that failed and I fell back into illness, I learned valuable lessons. It was during the brief period of wellness that I experienced in 2012 that my trainer, Sue, recommended a book that would change my life, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. This was the first spiritual book I had read, and it deepened my sense that there was more to life than meets the eye. Without the influence of this book, I don't know whether I would have been open to stories of transcendent healing. And it was stories like these that helped me uncover my next steps. Another moment of synchronicity would later show me that the power of now would have a key role in my journey in Peru. Sue had a huge impact on the course of my life. She is a person in alignment with her authenticity. And when we're in the presence of individuals in that state, the high level of energy operating through them will impact on us too. As I grow into my own authenticity, I witness the indirect impact others I have on others as well. I'm humbled by how many people tell me that I've changed their life, and in ways that I didn't consciously try to. An example being more people than I would have believed possible, thanking me for introducing them to their significant other, and not once was it intentional. Eckhart Tolle's work wasn't the only life-changing information that Sue had introduced me to. We would occasionally use the methods of Paul Chack in my strength training. this would lead to another experience of synchronicity in the amazon when sue recommended that i increase the amount of micronutrients in my diet by juicing she inadvertently played another part in my path to the jungle sue had pointed me towards the juice master jason vale and years later it would be his super juice me program that guided my chronic illness into full remission on route to peru inspiration By April of 2014, I'd finally resolved the issues caused by my digital agency and became able to once again take on freelance work for my brother's business. I'd continued working with Stephen in this way since leaving full-time employment from his company in 2012. I regularly spoke to Stephen via online video calls to discuss the work I was doing for him and it would have been impossible for him not to notice the desperate state my life had fallen into. When my physical pain may not have been evident to him, I had become clinically obese and sulked with depression. I didn't realise it at the time, but a major transformation in my life circumstances was just around the corner. At the end of one of my work calls to Stephen, he recommended a documentary called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. The way we see the outer world is often a reflection of our inner world, and without knowing, knowing anything about the film, I remember sarcastically joking that the title sounded really inspirational. <laughs> I also remember Stephen rolling his eyes at my cynicism, asserting that the documentary was in fact very inspirational and strongly recommended that I watch it. I'm grateful that I listened to my brother's advice and watched Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. The film title described the condition of Joe Cross, an Australian man who was suffering from a chronic illness and was vastly overweight. Needless to say, I strongly related to Joe's condition and was massively inspired by his actions in the documentary. I saw Joe and another man complete a 60-day juice fast, foregoing all solid food in that time, drinking only fruit and vegetable juices. By doing so, Joe returned to a healthy body weight and put his chronic illness into remission without drugs. I knew deep down that I had to follow Joe Cross's footsteps by doing a 60-day juice fast. I felt that at the very minimum, doing a fast like this would help me to reduce my body weight and likely the severity of the arthritis I suffered from. The best case scenario was that I would get the same result as Joe and put my illness into full remission without the need for pharmaceuticals. When I, looked up on, when I looked online to find the juicing plan that Joe had done, I stumbled across Jason Vale, the juice master that Sue had recommended to me years before. I followed that breadcrumb to my next step. Upon finding my way back to Jason Vale's work, I was struck by an amazing and meaningful coincidence. He had just released a documentary called Super Juice Me, and as part of the launch week, it was free to view online by signing up to his mailing list. It felt like divine timing, and another breadcrumb to follow. This documentary tracked the journey of eight chronically ill people who took part in a 28-day juice fast at one of Jason's retreat centres. The results were less dramatic than in Joe Cross's documentary, but without fail, every person felt significantly better. A cynical view of the Super Juice Me documentary is that it's nothing more than a 90-minute advert for the accompanying Super Juice Me program. Jason's vale co- Jason Vale's company not only produced the documentary, but sells the 28-day program featured in the documentary too. Either way, between the documentary and the synchronicities that led me to it, I was sold. I pre-ordered the plan, juicer, blender and supplements from the company soon after. I decided to do the program twice, back to back, plus a further four days to make 60 days all just like Joe Cross. It was May when I ordered the equipment and that was required to start the fast, but I wouldn't receive everything I needed to begin until June. The time in between was the beginning of a big shift for me mentally. By setting the intention to do the fast and finally committing to it, I felt so much more positive. It was in this time that I saw Aubrey Marcus on Joe Rogan's podcast, talking about a spiritual experience in Peru with a plant medicine called Huachuma. Aubrey had spoken about a similar medicine on a previous episode of the podcast, so the idea wasn't unfamiliar to me. I followed my interest and researched different plant medicines. However, in 2014, there wasn't a wealth of information about Huachuma online. There was more information about the other medicine that Aubrey had spoken of on an earlier episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Ayahuasca. I discovered incredible stories of people who had received physical, psychological and spiritual healing by working with Ayahuasca. Hearing so much anecdotal evidence about people healing from chronic illnesses helped me to develop greater faith that I was capable of healing too. While I had a growing interest in the plant medicines of the Amazon, I didn't seriously consider the possibility that I may end up going there anytime soon. My financial situation was in poor shape and the pharmaceutical drugs that I had been prescribed made travelling very difficult. I was taking a biologic medication called Adalimumab and received this phenomenally expensive drug for free through the NHS. It was delivered every two weeks in a refrigerated delivery truck and had to be stored at a certain temperature. Accessing this outside of the UK seemed almost impossible. By May of 2014, I was more optimistic about the future than I had been in a long time. Exposing myself to so many amazing stories of healing gave me faith that the juice fast that I had planned was going to be effective. My mind had been open to the idea that there were alternative paths to healing, and perhaps conventional treatment wasn't the path for me. I began to truly believe that I could solve my health issues and stop taking pharmaceutical drugs, just like Joe Cross in Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. As the juice fast approached, I had the big decision to make about my medication. I planned to begin my juice fast on Monday and chose June the 23rd. I had an appointment with my rheumatologist the week before and wanted to ask about the fast and the possibility of coming off my medication at that time. I didn't even get to the stage of questioning the pharmaceuticals, with my rheumatologist forthrightly dismissive about the fast. I remember sobbing tearfully in front of the woman. Her negativity was heartbreaking on top of the physical pain that I was in, an immense shame I was feeling about my body weight. A nurse had just weighed me at an all-time high of 270 pounds. My rheumatologist had left me feeling broken, but the truth is I had been broken open. I had been struck to the core of my being, past the face I put on for the world, past the depth of my sadness. The friction sparked a dormant anger. I was determined to prove my rheumatologist and the dogmatic system she upheld to be wrong. Anger is a low level of energy, but a significantly higher one than depression. I was finally ready to answer the call and begin the journey to regain my health. I didn't realize it at the time, but this path would lead me through both heaven and hell. And that's the end of chapter two. And that's the end of everything that I'm going to read to you today. That's where I got up to in the book. And I've written a further three chapters on traveling to Peru and the experiences in Peru. A little bit beyond that, I also have, I would say, about two-thirds of the conclusion of the book written, which isn't really my story, but just like what I've taken from the experiences. And it's still very much my intention to complete this book and I do not know how that is going to unfold having read back those two chapters I'm not really sure how I feel about it one thing that I do feel sure of is that I can do better than this and it's going to be a real inner journey for me like making the decision about how to go about completing this work A lot of work has gone into the chapters that I've put together already. Everything is like cited and there's notations on everything. And yeah, it's been a a real journey to get to this point. But truthfully, I know I can do better. And, you know, on the other hand, perhaps there's merit to leaving the work mostly untouched as i'd said in the prologue and you know it's a reflection of where i was at at the time of writing as well and perhaps the reader can get to see my own growth in my writing as the book progresses but these are all decisions that i'm going to have to make for myself in time and just trust that this will happen when it happens if anything i'm just very glad that i didn't rush out an earlier version of the book and get the story out there before it was ready to be out there and I know if I'd put out a version of the book that I'd originally intended it uh, would not be something that would sit well with me in this moment so <laughs> I trust that this will happen when it happens I'm very happy to be sharing this at this stage and uh, perhaps I'll reflect back on this podcast someday with a new version of the book and think like geez I'm glad that didn't go out there <laughs> Here's a final book but hey you know at least you get like an hour of entertainment out of this if nothing else and uh like I said after I'd finished the section on chapter one like do leave me some feedback go to causewayliving.com slash podcast and let me know what you think and be honest you know without being hurtful (laughs) if uh if you got some constructive criticism I'm all about it and I want to hear it you know there's a lot of stuff in there for me and I feel like the I maybe you know like unsurprisingly Perhaps if you listen to the episodes of the podcast, I go off on little tangents here and there, and I think it could be maybe more um like linear at times, but it would be awesome to hear your thoughts. So <laughs> let me know what you think uh, on slash podcast. There's a contact form on there, and while you're on the website, Another thing you can do on that page is support the podcast. So if you're enjoying these episodes and want to reciprocate and give something back for (laughs) the value that you might have taken from these podcasts... Um, you can do so and um, you can leave a one-off donation which is awesome but the more helpful thing is there's a few different options on there to set up a recurring donation and to different values you know for a very modest amount each month you can give a little bit of support and with enough people supporting then that's going to go a long way towards the equipment that I'm going to invest in very soon and have myself set up for more interview style podcasts and conversations and i've really enjoyed doing these first well getting close to the first 20 podcasts and mostly solo episodes but um the few episodes that i've done with someone else they've all been with my friend matt thompson so far (laughs) the shared podcast that he's putting out on his best of belfast podcast as well i just feel clear that like that's the way i want to move with this podcast might still do solo episodes like this in the future but um, i'm excited to get this new equipment and step forward into more interview conversational style ones and you can be a part of supporting that over on causewayliving.com slash podcast you can set up a donation and especially those recurring donations really you know help with the ongoing costs of like hosting and uh, let me know that there's people who are on board for the journey and let's see where we can grow this thing to together on that note i'm going to wrap this episode up here it's a slightly longer one than normal i hope you enjoyed it and next week we'll be back with another episode of the causeway living podcast on wednesday once again going to be wednesdays going forward Weekends are now busy with workshops and Dash and Splash. And if you want to come and take part in a workshop, you can find out all the information on the Wim Hof section of the website. Likewise with Dash and Splash, there's a new page up on the website there with all the information about Dash and Splash. Come and get involved if you live locally. And maybe I'll see you in person. If not, I'll catch you on the World Wide Web here next week. Take care, much love and peace out.